Let me just say how delighted I am to introduce Katie Redford. So uh, many of you may probably have heard about Katie. Uh, you may recognize her face. Her face is on the Women Alumni uh, uh, Hall. So <laughs> you may have seen her. So she's arguably one of our most famous human rights alums. So she, she got her JD from UVA and then went on to found an, an important human rights organization, Earth Rights International, which has like dozens of people at various parts of the world uh, that is dedicated to the protection of both human rights and environmental rights. So she, uh, and she's also known to come to the law school with some frequency to teach short courses as well as to mentor UVA law students and to employ them every now and then as interns <laughs> at her organization. So she's, she, she clearly knows what she's talking about and it's wonderful to have her here today to talk about sort of the world of human rights law and strategies for, for career tips and strategies uh, for those interested in this kind of work. So uh, I'll give the floor to Katie. It's supposed to be a bit of an informal yeah. conversation, so just you can talk for however long you are. Uh, lean want here, to. if that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, gosh, great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, it's always fun to come back to UVA, even though this place looks so different from when I was here. Um, and also it just looks different standing up here and talking to you as someone who supposedly knows what she's talking about <laughs> rather than when I was here and I was sitting out there going, oh my God, what am I doing? I don't have any idea what the person up there is talking about and how am I going to get from there to a career in human rights and environmental justice and essentially saving the world, which is um, why I went to law school in the first place. Um, you know, small, small goals. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I graduated, I guess, 20 years ago um, and started Earth Rights International um, in my third year of law school with a friend of mine from law school, Tyler Giannini, um, who's um, still one of my closest friends and uh, he now runs the human rights program at Harvard Law School so you know we grow up and and do um, pretty impressive things and yet all of us were um, sitting where you were and wondering how it was going to all work out and whether um, we would even graduate <laughs> um, and fulfill <laughs> and pass the bar and all that stuff and and you will um, so yeah so Earth Rights International um, is, um, as Mila said, a, a human rights and environmental um, law and advocacy organization. We, um, our, our mission is to combine the power of law and the power of people in defense of human rights and the environment. And um, what does that mean, really? I mean, we focus on the interconnections between human rights abuses and environmental degradation. So the kinds of human rights abuses that occur um, often in the name of development um, or natural resource exploitation, extraction, um, land um, development projects, large agricultural projects, but the kinds of things that are happening um, in very land-based um, resource-based uh, sectors um, and where kind of the international corporate government um, law and policy agenda clashes often very violently on the ground with communities, 
with people, with families, and with sensitive ecosystems um, that, ha that are, by definition, um, at the very most local level. And so when you've got global corporations, um, global financial institutions, governments that are making decisions and government actors that are making decisions in Washington or London or New York or San Francisco or Cairo or wherever, um, they might be making system, decisions that are, that are supported by systems and guided by laws and policies that are made and designed at the international level, and yet they have profound human rights and environmental impacts at the most local level where you have situations like um, villages and, and families forced out of their homes to make way for a gas pipeline, or communities' entire water resources and air that they breathe polluted by a mega coal project. Um, and, you know, indigenous communities being forced out of their traditional lands to make way for logging roads and, and multinational um, investment projects. And so these are problems that when you've got people losing their homes or faced with violence or forcefully relocated at gunpoint, they're happening on the human rights level to individuals, to families and communities, but they're driven by forces and driven by policies and many times laws that are international and global in, in nature. And so how do you solve those problems? How do you deal from a justice perspective and an accountability perspective with problems that happen at the local level but are driven by international actors? Um, and so from our perspective at Earthrights, we have to have local solutions, local leadership, um, local laws, policies, and strategies, but also regional and international laws legal strategies and campaigns um, and bring together really the local people-oriented um, solutions with the international and regional legal solutions. So Earthrights, um, we, as lawyers, we represent survivors um, and victims of human rights abuses, um, families and, and individuals who have had family members killed during forced relocations for mega development projects or killed by security forces or, or, or injured by security forces. And I say security forces because um, the question is who are they providing security for? But um, security forces hired um, and contracted by international corporations, U.S. corporations, European corporations, Chinese corporations, um, security forces that are sent to local communities to provide security for mining companies, for oil companies, for mega development, um, mega dams, um, and people who are raped by security forces. Um, they're specifically to uh, again, <laughs> provide security for these companies, their personnel, their staff, and their, and their um, property. And so our clients are people who are survivors of these human rights abuses, who are surviving family members of um, people who were killed during um, these so-called development projects. And, um, and we litigate um, in various places in the world, mostly in the United States, um, against companies that can be 
um, subject to U.S. court jurisdiction, whether it's state court or federal court. Um, but we also litigate in countries um, like Cambodia, Burma, Lima, um, countries where we have offices. So Earthrights has offices here in the United States in Washington, D.C., in Thailand, um, where we focus on the six Mekong countries, so China, Thailand, Burma, now known as Myanmar, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Um, we have a, an office in Peru, in Lima, where we focus on Amazon, the Spanish-speaking Amazon countries, um, and we also have an office now in, in Burma, in, in Myanmar. And so we're accessing the courts that we can on behalf, on behalf of individuals and communities who are harmed by um, global, regional, and national corporate government and financial actors who are in their lands, in their communities, in order to extract, um, develop, and profit from the resources that people live near or on. Um, I said I was going to talk a little bit about um, some of the trends that I see in kind of the, the field of human rights right now. And there are so many trends. I mean, I'm not going to be like, and here are the three trends that are happening. There are so many. But from where we sit um, at Earthrights, um, we sort of noticed, you know, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, there, there are some commonalities um, that are always going to be um, present in sort of the extractive industries, in the, the intersection of human rights and the environment. And it's this um, sort of race to the bottom, this quest, which is going further and further um, afield now for limited and dwindling resources, whether those resources are oil and gas or gold and other precious metals or water or land. Resources are, um, are getting less and less, and the people that live on or near those resources are more marginalized um, than ever before because it's indigenous people, it's poor people, it's ethnic minorities. And these are precisely the kind, in my opinion, of, of people and communities that our justice system is set up to serve and that we as lawyers are driven and called and I think um, demanded to serve because how many of you came to law school because you had some sort of commitment to justice, right? That you want to become a lawyer so that you can help people that need your help. I'm guessing those of you who are in this room, that's why you came to law school. There's a lot of other people out there that aren't in this room right now. <laughs> I, I did go here, um, so, so I remember. Um, <laughs> but, but you came to, to help people and, and to, to fight and work for something, some sort of vision of, of justice. And at Earthrights, we see that as providing remedies providing a way for those who are harmed by quote-unquote development projects um, to tell their story, a forum in which to tell their story, tell what happened to them, whether it's a court or some other kind of, of forum or process, the media, whatever, um, and to tell their story to face the people or institutions that harmed them and 
to hold those actors accountable from a justice perspective and also from a deterrence perspective, right? So that every lawsuit that we bring, we hope will provide a remedy to the people who are harmed. We hope that it will punish those that benefited or tried to benefit or thought they could benefit from human rights abuses and will send a real warning to future perpetrators of human rights abuses that human rights abuses just don't pay, that it's not good business practice, that it's not part of a, a sound business plan. Um, you know, if you're not convinced by the moral, ethical reasons to not be complicit in slavery, torture, forced labor, killing, and rape, then you better be afraid of the law, which will hold you accountable. Um, and so that sort of um, where we come at this at, at Earth Rights, and that has always been what we've done. Recently, however, in, in the past few years, we've noticed a couple of key trends, um, and you know, you're always going to have in the kinds of legal uh, work, the kind of legal work that we do, David and Goliath sort of <laughs> situations where you've got your clients who are indigenous people from from Burma or Cambodia or. Columbia um, up against Shell um, oil company or Chevron or Chiquita. Um, yeah, your fruit is not safe either. <laughs> we, we have a case right now against Chiquita, um, speaking of the Columbia and then the peace, kill, peace deals, um, where um, we represent families of people who were killed, tortured, and disappeared by paramilitary death squads that, that Chiquita hired in Colombia to provide security for their fruit growing um, you know, businesses down there. And uh, I mean, the, the crazy thing is, is we're, we're suing uh, Chiquita for, for civil damages for the, for the abuses. Chiquita actually was charged about 10 years ago, or maybe even more, by the Bush administration for um, criminal criminal violations of our anti-terrorism laws. So after 9-11, the Bush administration passed laws saying that, guess what, guys, it's a criminal violation to hire known terrorists. Um, I mean, kind of makes sense, right? Well, Chiquita hired um, paramilitary death squads that were on the terrorist list of do not hire <laughs> by the Bush administration. They hired them, they got caught, they got charged, and they pled guilty. They, they copped, they pled guilty, paid $25 million to the United States, and we're done with it. Nothing to the communities, to the families that were terrorized, that lost family members. Um, and so this is just an example of the kinds of cases that we're doing, and there's food back there, um, at, at Earth Rights International. Um, these are the kinds of things that have been happening since we started the organization, but recently we've noticed sort of three major trends that I kind of want to highlight for you. One is that um, I think the most urgent and important threat to global human rights today is climate change. Um, if you are a human rights activist, if you care about human rights, if you care about justice, climate change is of absolute urgency and importance, and it needs a human rights strategy, it needs a human rights solution, it needs a justice um, strategy, because the people who and the communities who are suffering the most already 
from climate change and who will suffer the most are the people who had nothing to do with creating the problem, okay? And those who are benefiting and profiting the most from their contribution to climate change are not going to face the harms and suffer in the same way. Um, and they are not being held accountable. So that's an important, I think, human rights um, struggle and issue and justice issue that all of us are going to need to focus on and focus on a lot more strategically um, going forward. Had you asked me 20 years ago what was the biggest threat to global human rights, I would have said oil companies. <laughs> um, and, they, and, and guess what? They were part of the problem for climate change, too. But, um, but today, the global climate change and climate justice um, challenge is something that anyone who cares about human rights needs to think about. And clearly, there is not a solution to this yet. The governments, the world leaders, our leaders have not done anything, um, even close to what is needed to be done to turn this Titanic around. And so that is something that um, I put to you all as a challenge um, in the human rights world um, is climate change. Um, the second trend that I think is really important to think about is the rise of new, um, new financial and global corporate and government players. Um, 20 years ago when I started this work, it was all about the American, you know, the America and Europe, whether it's the global superpowers, the global gut, these, these governments that are deciding and making policy and corporations that are benefiting from it. Now, and, and from a positive perspective, at least when it was European and, and American companies most of the time doing the bad stuff, we had functioning legal systems um, that, that we could try, at least, um, to, to haul them into and to hold them accountable. Now, that's not quite, that's not quite the, the issue anymore. We've got the rise of um, Chinese corporations as, one of, as some of the most powerful um, and globally pervasive um, entities. Korean corporations, Thai companies. In, in Latin America, we've got Brazilian, we've got South, American, South African companies. And so it's not enough anymore as human rights lawyers and human rights um, activists to just know about American law um, and just know how to access even the UN system or the international system. We need people who are skilled and who can litigate and be effective in national level court systems all around the world, whether you are litigating and demanding justice and accessing legal systems in what we call the host countries, the place where the harms are happening, um, or the home countries, the, the home countries of the companies, the banks, or the actors um, that are complicit in the human rights and the environmental abuses, because there is very little, if anything, today um, in the world of human rights that is purely local and that purely happens within one legal system. So um, this is uh, a, a challenge, um, especially for people in the United States who, who maybe find <laughs> that, their, their that their law degree isn't the be-all and end-all. 
um, but that you know you need to actually be able to understand and practice um, and be effective in other legal systems as well. Um, the third and final trend that I'll sort of talk about, which um, is a major challenge, but also offers um, sort of strategies and opportunities for all of us to, to think about and, and learn from, is um, this rise of, this is sort of two different things, but the rise of immunities um, and the sort of, I mean, it's not surprising, right, that when we're successful and when we hold human rights abusers accountable and we punish them for their complicity and abuse, um, one would hope that they would simply just say, okay, we're going to change our practice. We're not going to do this anymore. Um, we're going to be good corporate or financial or government citizens. Um, sometimes that happens, and for sure the systems are changing and incentives are changing. Um, but at the same time, what we've seen is actually a trend whereby, again, and we focus a lot on corporations, but you could say this for banks and governments as well, um, instead of a transformation or a shift in behavior, you find a, a, a shift in shifting from defense to offense, where we see corporations now regularly going into courts and demanding legal protection of their human rights. Um, you all know about Citizens United, right? Right. I mean, so the corporate capture of our democracy in this country corporate hijacking, some people call it, whereby companies are literally buying their way into our every system of our government, but then also demanding and receiving legal protection of free speech rights, even though they don't have any mouths, um, free freedom of religion, even though arguably I, I don't think a corporation has a soul. I mean, that's just like in the religious sense <laughs> they, they, the individuals do. But like, you know, these are arguments that are being made and, and won in U.S. courts, but they're also being made and, and not, they haven't won yet, but in courts around the world. So last year, um, actually earlier this year, we had to actually go into the inter-American court um, of human rights and argue against um, a request for an advisory opinion from the country Panama who was asking the court to um, basically clarify whether corporations have human rights under the inter-American system for human rights. I mean, seriously, like really? Any of you who have taken human rights or even if you've just seen some movies about the Holocaust, we know that the human rights legal system was not set up and created to take care of Chevron. Um, they don't seem to know that right now, but this is a very, very dangerous trend, and it's something that we have to watch, that actually we need to be very, very vigilant to protecting human rights as a strategy, as a legal construct for real, living, breathing human, human beings, not corporations, not banks, not, not, you know, institutions that eat money and breathe profit, okay, but real, living, breathing people. Um, so that's an incredibly important trend that I think is something to watch. And connected to that is this offensive strategy that many, many companies are actually taking against 
human rights lawyers against activist lawyers, environmentalists, civil society leaders. Um, it is becoming increasingly dangerous to be a human rights or environmental activist these days. Um, just last year in 2015 alone, close to 200 people in 25 countries were killed um, for standing up to defend the environment. These are just environmentalists that have been documented as assassinated or, or, or murdered for their, for their work, but there are hundreds and hundreds of more people who are threatened every single day. Every single one of our staff um, at Earth Rights International has faced some kind of threats, whether it's physical threats, security threats, or more often in this country, legal threats. Um, Earth Rights has had to increasingly come and not just litigate against companies on behalf of our clients who are human rights um, survivors, but we've had to actually defend NGOs um, for do and, and activists, human rights lawyers, environmental lawyers, human rights and environmental NGOs, simply for doing what NGOs do, exercising their rights to free speech and association. So on one hand, you've got Citizens United where companies have free speech rights under our legal system, under the, the Constitution. And those very same companies are going after NGOs and activists and lawyers for simply exercising their free speech rights. And so these kinds of slap suits are on the rise. Um, I don't know if you guys have heard about the lawsuit against Greenpeace um, recently. Yeah, so, so Greenpeace is being sued by Resolute, which is a timber company in, um, under RICO. So we all know, I mean, like mafia, um, trouble damages. <laughs> and they're being sued under RICO for free speech. What's the allegation that Greenpeace called Resolute, a timber company that clear-cut in Canada, they, called, they said Resolute is a forest destroyer. Well, guess what? They are. You clear-cut and you're destroying the forest. It's really not that hard. But they're, and, and, and Resolute will lose, but Greenpeace has to spend tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably years wasting their time distracting from actually protecting the forest in order to defend themselves from this corporate attack. Um, and so I don't know if you guys saw the, also the most recent climate denial lawsuit. It's a different kind of climate denial where, um, not, not the kind that we all are used to from like Exxon and Chevron, but um, this, this lawyer uh, sued pretty much every environmental group, but I was kind of sad that we weren't on it. <laughs> I was like, come on, we're talking about climate change. What's the matter? Um, but um, you know, again, Greenpeace, Sierra Club, Rainforest Action Network, there were dozens and dozens of defendants in this case for um, creating a climate cult that he has to deal with, mostly in Berkeley, California, and that it's a real, it's suffering for him to have to deal with these climate people who have made up climate change as a situation. And he's suing, this, this lawyer is suing these NGOs and funders under RICO also, um, saying that um, climate science is false and that there is a lot of suffering and angst and worry and annoyance from the climate cult um, in Berkeley that, uh, <laughs> that he and others have to deal with because of the environmentalists. So like, the law is a tool um, 
that all of us can use in furtherance of justice and accountability and human rights protection and environmental protection, but it's also a, a tool that those who seek to profit from human rights and environmental exploitation are using against us. Um, and so that provides both um, food for thought, I think, but also opportunities for lawyers um, to you know, do good in a lot of different ways, whether you're representing clients um, in their cases against, against um, those who violated their rights or harmed their environments, or you're defending um, clients for advocating and standing up. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, where I see the field right now. Um, it's in many ways the same field that, um, that human rights began with, which is, you know, legal strategies, legal tools that are about lifting up the dignity and freedom of individual people and communities against injustice, against dictatorship, against violence, um, and you know, standing for, for something that we all believe in, which are, are the principles of dignity and justice um, that are guaranteed in, in documents like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, but the players are changing. The players are, are, are different, and we need to change. We need to understand that. Um, we need to understand both their defensive strategies and their offensive strategies, and we need to really fight back right now as human rights lawyers and activists to recapture human rights as our language, as our tool, as a tool for, again, people who actually breathe air, drink water, and eat food, not for these nameless, faceless institutions and corporations who are continually and increasingly demanding human rights protections and, and getting them. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's what I do. That's what we do at Earth Rights. Um, we have um, an amazing team of people from probably about 12 different countries, um, various educational and ethnic backgrounds, and we have, I think, um, an inspiring job, and we also have a lot of fun doing it. Um, right? Yes. <laughs> One of our summer interns here <laughs> can attest, and you can't say anything bad in front of me. Um, a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, so um, if you have any questions, um, anything you particularly are interested in, I'm happy to take them now. Mm -hmm. So this sort of ties into climate change, but how, does, how do you personally in the human rights community uh, view about like what I view as the increasing intersection between humanitarian assistance and human rights? Um, and what's the climate change? Well, just Are you talking about like mitigation change. and adaptation funds? And just like the potential or predicted increase in refugee, like climate refugees. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also like even beyond the climate issue, just like in general, the intersection between humanitarian assistance and human rights. Yeah. Um, gosh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I think that they're totally connected. And you could sort of look at the humanitarian assistance side as um, a necessary Band-Aid that you need. And I don't mean Band-Aid in like a bad sense of the word. I mean an incredibly important and necessary um, 
way of, of addressing human rights abuses, whether it's um, you know humanitarian crises created by war or by climate, you know people being dislocated from from rising waters or um, loss of food and water source, whatever. Um, and what we see as the important piece and our contribution is actually um, looking at the systems and structures that give rise, um, that sort of create refugees in the first place. Um, because most humanitarian crises are um, created by um, or, or sparked or catalyzed by some kind of violation of human rights or and um, an environmental disaster, whether that's a man-made environmental disaster like climate change or um, you know, uh, just a weather-related environmental disaster. But you can't, I don't think you can separate the two. And I think that human rights lawyers and activists and strategists need to actually be working really closely with um, those in the humanitarian field. And because, I mean, sometimes there are human rights problems on the humanitarian side also. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Okay. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, we could go on and on. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, sort of your process and experience when you were forming birth rights, when you were, you know, yeah. our age. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a blur. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we, um, Gosh, I mean, well, you know how it is. Like, you're what? What year are you guys all? Are you first year, second years, second, first? So, okay. So, you know, first year, you're just speaking a blur. You're kind of like just trying to survive, right? And then second year, all of a sudden, you're sort of trying to f supposed to figure out what you're doing with your life and like what kind of job are you going to get in the summer because. Um, that's the job that hopefully you'll be hired for. At least that's like the mainstream, you know, and, and what, um, I don't know if it's actually still the case. It was, I was here in the 90s and so everyone who went corporate got jobs and had lots to um, choose from. And I know that it's, it's a lot different now, but in the, in the nonprofit and public interest field, it's a little bit different. Um, most people, you know, feel lucky if at the end of their third year they have any clue what they're doing, <laughs> um, at least with a paid position. Um, and that's fine, that's like, and everyone I know who wants to do this work ends up doing it. Um, so if that's what you want, you will end up doing it. It's just not that the, the path is as clear or, or defined. Um, but anyway, we, um, so Tyler and I were, you know, we like sat next to each other in torts first year, that's how we met, <laughs> it was totally lucky. and. Um, we did internships in the summer of our second year with a human rights organization in Thailand. And we were sort of trying to figure out what are we gonna do when we go back third year? Like what, how do we even find jobs? What are we gonna do? Does anyone even like hire people out of law school? And um, we ended up uh, getting the idea to start Earth Rights when we were in the jungle of Burma. And we met this person um, from Burma, and he was our age. He had been a student in um, Burma's sort of version of Tiananmen Square. They had a student uprising um, that was cracked down upon um, very brutally. And most of the students who had been in school, college students, and had taken to the streets peacefully, they actually fled to the jungles and took up arms against, um, against the military dictatorship. 
And so we met this student who had been a pre-med student and now he was the um, war secretary of the All Burma Students Democratic Front, right? And he's telling us about um, this gas pipeline in Burma that is being constructed by an American oil company, Unical, which um, doesn't exist anymore. It's been taken over by Chevron. But at the time, Unical was a California oil company, and they were working together with Total, a French company, and had gone into contract with the Burmese military dictatorship to build this pipeline across Burma into Thailand to extract and, and deliver natural gas. And um, Unical had hired the Burmese military, which was like the most notorious human rights abusing, um, one of the most notorious human rights abusing armies in the world and very, very well known for forced labor, forced labor and using rape as, um, as a weapon um, of uh, keeping their civilian populations down. And so, no big surprise, you hire um, slave masters and rapists to be your security guards. And what do they do while they're providing security for your pipeline? They force thousands of people to work, building helipads, roads, access roads, the pipeline route itself, um, raped, raped women, killed people. And all of this was happening in connection with this American oil company. And so this guy, Zulu, who was the war secretary slash pre-med student, um, was like, okay, so this is your American oil company, and um, your company has come to Burma and is benefiting from these human rights abuses against our people. Um, and we've written letters to the president of the company, we've written letters to the president of the United States, we've written letters to the World Bank telling them, please don't finance this, this pipeline because of the human rights abuses. And the pipeline continues, the suffering continues. So this is what, they, this, is what this guy said to Tyler and I. Um, he's like, so um, if we've tried everything and they're just ignoring us and our people are dying, would it be illegal for us to blow up the pipeline? And, you know, we were like, well, we're only second years. Maybe they'll teach us that third year, but <laughs> I haven't taken a class yet called blowing stuff up and is it illegal? But basically, we were, we were like, this is crazy. This is an American company. You could never get away with this in America, but because here we are in Burma, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. And that was our inspiration to start Earth Rights. It was... It was we saw a need, because we were like, this, they have two tools in their toolbox, writing letters and blowing stuff up. You've got to be able to sue, we thought. Um, it turns out we were wrong for a little while, because back then you couldn't actually sue a corporation um, for what it had done outside of their own home country jurisdiction. You had to sue. You, I mean, tort, it's like typical tort law, right? You sue where the tort happened. So what does that mean in a place like Burma or Nigeria? You can't sue in Burma. You might as well just you know, walk into jail to try to do that. And so the reason that I'm telling you, like our process was getting real experiences, talking to real people, figuring out what their needs were, and then seeing who's doing that. Is anyone doing that? Nobody was doing that. We talked, you know, we came back to law school. We tried to figure out who's doing corporate accountability in the human rights community. Nobody. We talked to our professors. Hey, how can we sue this oil company? You can't. Um, and so 
our process was we saw a need and we saw that need by actually being in the communities that we wanted to serve um, and hearing from the people, our future clients, what they wanted um, and how we could help. And then we sort of scanned the field and saw that nobody was doing it. And that's when we started decided to start Earthrights. I mean, we were completely clueless. Like, to think, you know, like, oh yeah, we're going to start an organization so that we can sue an oil company, two people who haven't even graduated from law school yet, right? And our professors told us that we couldn't do it. Not all of them. Some of them actually supported us. Um, but, but some of them were like, you can't sue an oil company. That's like unconstitutional. Um, and so like our process was kind of communicating to the people that we wanted to work with, listening to what they wanted, not listening to people who told us that you can't do that, ignoring them and saying, you're just saying that because nobody ever has, so see you later, we're not going to listen to you, figuring out who, um, who could support us, how to, you know, everything from like getting funding to putting together an, an NGO to getting nonprofit status and and suing an oil company. I mean, literally, we got $30,000 from the Echoing Green Foundation, um, and we thought we were rich, and that was it. And that was 20 years ago. There were three of us who started Earthrights. Um, we thought we would do a lawsuit. We totally thought we would win the lawsuit within two years and then get, like, real jobs. <laughs> I mean, real jobs, like, by other organizations that could raise the money and pay us to do it. It took a little longer than that. And, um, but here we are, you know, all these years later, we have more than 60 staff. We have four offices around the world. We've got a lot of lawsuits, two schools, um, training activists. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of, we just made it up as we went along um, and figured it out as we went. And I would say of every single person that I know who works um, in kind of like the social justice nonprofit field, um, that's the only common thing in their path to getting from wanting to have a job and getting a job, is wanting it bad enough, staying committed, and figuring it out. Because there just isn't a, a path, which is so hard, I think, to hear. Um, especially people like you, because here you are at UVA. Clearly, you've done everything right so far, right? Like, you did well in high school, probably. You got good SAT scores. You went to a good college. Then you did well in college. And you've, you know, developed your resume so that and you got good LSAT scores. And you wrote a really good essay. And here you are. And you're asking me, like, what classes should I take so I can get a job with Earthrights? And what I'm going to tell you is there's actually... Like, that's where the formula ends, is right here. Um, because every person at Earthrights had a different way of getting, um, getting a job in our organization. I mean, one person who works seriously, like one of my favorite stories is um, Rachel, who, do you know this story? I think, I think she meant, yeah. Yeah, so we, so we were having um, an event at Earthrights uh, it was actually like a, we lost at the Supreme Court. It was Keoghle, after the Keoghle v. Royal Dutch Shell debacle in the Supreme Court. Um, I won't swear. Um, decided against us. <laughs> decided against human rights and for corporate power. Um, but anyway, we had a, a strategy session with a bunch of human rights lawyers and NGOs following that to sort of figure out next steps. 
And after most of our after our strategy session, we had like a party at a restaurant um, where everyone kind of like drowned their sorrows and got a little bit more creative with their ideas of how to fight back, shall we say? <laughs> and about a week later, we got the most unbelievably written, basically advocacy piece letter from the woman who had been our server at that, saying, I was your waitress at that event, and you might have noticed me hovering because every time I went to a different table, there was such an amazing conversation. And I have a master's at, from Yale, but I'm waiting tables because I'm trying to like get into the NGO field. And I overheard all your conversations, and I will do anything to work for you. And so we hired this one with a master's of, at, from, from Yale um, as our administrative assistant part-time while she waited tables. And since that time, she's like moved her way up, and now she has like this great job at Earthrights. But like literally, it's like, you know, so maybe go wait tables and see who you wait on, and that might lead to a job. Or like hang out in the jungle of Burma and talk to a pre-med student slash blower upper of pipelines. Like there's, you know, I mean, <coughs> some people who go to Harvard and Yale have human rights fellowships, and hopefully someday UVA will have that. But there's the Bertha Fellowship, which is, um, which, which is an amazing opportunity. There's so many different ways um, and processes. So like, if you are creative and you want it bad enough, then you'll get it. And I don't know a single person who, who didn't. I mean, another one, like Michelle Harrison, who's a UVA law grad, she literally, like I was doing one of these talks, I don't know, five years ago, and she had a, a job offer that she didn't want, but she was like, I don't really know else I'm gonna do. And then after she heard me talk, she came up and she basically just started stalking me after that, and, and, which in a good way, and, and we hired her, you know, eventually. Um, <laughs> now she's a lawyer at Earthrights and she'll probably come down and speak to you at some point. So like, yeah, there's so many ways. Mm -hmm. I, well, I had a question, but I'm going to shift the conversation back to climate change, so I don't mm -hmm. know if anybody wants to talk more about the career path first. Would any sort of background, like a language, or maybe like studying economics, or local government, or uh, that sort of thing, be especially useful in your field? Totally, all of it. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think um, what I tell people, um, because I know you probably feel like you have zero time right now, and you're like so busy as a law student, but actually not true. Like there's, you actually do have a lot of free time, and so compared to what you'll have like once you actually have to go out and work. Um, and so um, the kinds of things that I advise people to do while they're in law school and you do have this free time is um, either through clinics or in, in your summer jobs, um, get experience in the kinds of communities that you feel passionate about serving or in the kinds of organizations that you feel um, passionate about working, working in. Um, and if you don't know what you're passionate about yet, then try a lot of different things. But like um, getting that kind of community service and community experience, um, either you know, in the United States, if those are the communities that you feel passionate about serving, or somewhere around the world, like you're never gonna have, I don't think, um, as good of an opportunity, especially in your summers, to get the law school to pay for you to go and volunteer um, in, in a community. Language is incredibly important. Um, so for sure, that 
is always going to help. Um, the other two things that I think um, are I look for um, on resumes when I'm looking at people is um, is organizing experience, um, community organizing experience, like grassroots activism, and whether that's like literally going door to door and knocking on doors and getting out the vote, um, that kind of organizing experience, or um, doing strategic campaigning um, around a political issue or any kind of issue, because I feel like um, especially lawyers are very linear and methodical and logical, and organizing is a skill that it's really hard to teach it, but experience and doing it and figuring out like what is the ecosystem of all the different players, allies, adversaries, leverage points that I need to have. Um, that's just something that I think is really, really useful, and you really have to learn it by doing it. Um, and then the third thing that I think is, is everyone who wants to go into nonprofit or public service should have fundraising experience. Um, whether it's like, you know, I mean, I like literally sold, did bake sales and stuff here, um, but getting used to um, raising money, asking people for money, harassing people for money, whatever it is, fundraising is a key part of any public service um, job, and the more experience you have, the more marketable you're going to be, regardless if you're applying for a fundraising job or a legal job or whatever. Mm -hmm. That was actually going to be part of my question, is how, how you fundraise, write grants, who is uh, someone's job to be able to compete against these multi-billion dollar companies? How do you... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we do it on a shoestring. Yeah, we have, um, so, so the, the um, waitress from Yale that I talked about, she's now actually in, on our fundraising team. And, um, you know, basically writing grant proposals, we get all of our money from private foundations and private individual donors. 95% um, of it comes from grants. Um, Actually, now we have some government grants. Not the U.S. government will never fund us, but um, <laughs> suing too many of their corporations. But the Swedes and the Swiss, they they like us. Um, yeah, but it's basically you write grant proposals, and you know, fundraising is um, and grant writing is very similar actually to legal advocacy. It's like, you know, you're asking a court for something, you're putting your, together your argument for why the court should decide your way, and it's fundraising is the same thing. It's like here's our need, here's, you know, our argument for why you should give us money, and, um, and then you just put your argument together. So, yeah, it's an amazing skill to have, though, and it's, a, it's just a kind of advocacy. At the end of the day, if you win that campaign, you get a check. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I have a question kind of combining the career path and climate change stuff. So the one thing I'm running into is after having such an amazing summer at Earthbrains, and I'm, like, trying to find like another organization that will take me on for this like, climate change and human rights stuff, it's hard to find these opportunities because it's such a new phenomenon that yeah. like, people, there aren't a lot of organizations out there. Right. So what, I guess, advice do you have for someone who's trying to carve a path in that intersection but like without the resources available? Like what kind of practical skills should we as students be developing now and um, prioritizing? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, there aren't that many groups that are c 
coming at it from like a climate change and human rights perspective, although I think that's going to change. I mean, you know, come back to Earth rights. We're, we're going to see some people soon. Um, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but we have to fundraise for that first, so. Um, but, um, I mean, you can think about, well, the other thing, too, that, that um, is not unique to, to this field at all, but networks. I mean, like, basically, all the organizations that do this, we know them. So you should just, like, talk to me. Um, but, like, CL. CL is one of the groups that's doing that. I'm actually on their board, so I have a little bit of power um, with that organization. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, like, CL, it's Bank Information Center, it's Oil Change International. Um, Friends of the Year, Dreamforce Action Network, like all of those organizations, and they might not have like a specifically legal focus, but I mean, that's where you could get your campaigning experience and your organizing experience. And don't, I, I would suggest, um, don't be so focused on, I think people define legal careers very narrowly, and there are actually very few organizations that litigate, um, you know, in, in this field. Um, I mean, as you know, nobody has successfully sued anyone for climate change-related harms or abuses. So that's why it doesn't exist yet, because there isn't any precedent for it. Um, but hopefully there will be soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's like networking is, the, is probably the best advice. Mm -hmm. I guess now, now, now my question fits a bit better. So I guess I have two climate change-related questions. One sort of follows up on me question, which is, uh, so in the law school curriculum, we think we have a course in human rights, and then there is a class in environmental law, but they don't always come together, right? So I right. teach international human rights. That's like, climate change is not in the textbook, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I add it now because I think it's tremendously important, but yeah. I think what are ways in which within the law school you you can find for opportunities to see the environment and human rights as part of sort of uh, as a, set of the very interconnected problems. Yeah. Um, so that's my one question. And then the second is, I guess, so you identify climate change as one of the biggest human rights problems of our age, and it, mm -hmm. it's only going to get bigger. Uh, mm -hmm. So so I guess I wondered, like, what are the main strategies you, your organization is planning on, on sort of pursuing in this respect? Because, I mean, you look at the climate, the, the Paris Agreement, yeah. right? It, to reach the goal that is set, 1.5 Celsius over pre-industrial levels, we yeah. basically need to have negative emissions from now on out. Yeah. Meaning, I don't know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> or I mean, my take is I'm sort of hoping for a technological miracle to come true. Right. Yeah. It seems like that's our biggest prospect for <laughs> being saved from this looming crisis is technological breakthrough. But short of that, it's like it's yeah, going to be these huge yeah. problems. There are going to be refugees. It's going to be. IDPs, it's going to be, I don't even yeah. know, like, let alone all the thousands and thousands of species that are going to disappear from the planet. Right. I mean, it's well, nice and, like a and famine and drought and water and food. I mean, it's like it is going to and it already is affecting everyone. And I hope that there is a technological breakthrough. That definitely will not be my contribution to the climate change situation because I can barely work my own phone. But um, <laughs> but um, where where we see, I mean, it's going to have to be a multifaceted, massive um, yeah. 
solution where every single sector plays a part. Um, and, and we will have no choice. I mean, that, that's just that's the situation. Um, what we see as, as our role right now is doing what we always do, which is trying to change the incentives by punishing the entities that are wrongfully benefiting and wrongfully profiting from the harm and providing remedies for those who are suffering or who will suffer. And that's the justice piece. And so, um, and that's the piece like in our country, we, ha we do not have an energy policy. And why don't we have an energy policy? Because our Congress is absolutely handcuffed by corporate interests. Um, and as with tobacco, okay, the tobacco companies blocked any kind of comprehensive health policy reform, um, whether it was at the state level or the national level, until they got sued. And until they realized, wow, actually, we could get sued, we could be on the hook for for damages associated with, with smoking, if oil companies are, at, at oil companies, coal companies, big emitters, you know, the, the, those that were the biggest part of the problem and profited from creating the problem um, and covering it up, as we now know for sure, um, once they are on the hook and held accountable and actually have to pay real money for damages to communities and individuals, then we think that um, that will provide an incentive rather than sit back and wait, am I going to be the next company to be sued, to actually stop blocking comprehensive policy change um, and, and policy solutions um, and start actually being part of the solution. Because the fact of the matter is someone is going to have to pay. Someone's going to have to pay for all of the farms lost, for all of the property lost, for all of the water, for the for, for sewer systems being totally redesigned, for communities that are going to be subdued. I mean, the harms are endless and they're expensive. And someone in this country and everywhere is going to have to pay. And so sooner or later, governments are going to be like, well, God, it's either going to be us or it's going to be Chevron and Exxon and BP. And so our approach is to find a legal strategy that actually um, forces the companies to, to pay their share um, and that hopefully then that provides communities and those harmed whose rights have been violated with some money um, for mitigation, adaptation, and, and resilience um, and hopefully that shifts the, the sort of incentives right now which is that companies have no incentive to change um, and they have no incentive but to block any kind of national or international policy. I mean, Paris, like, you know, the cops, that this was, the, what, the 20th cop in Paris? It, you know, they've, these global negotiations have been a disaster and a failure for all these years because, not because governments only are incompetent, but because there was a huge corporate influence blocking at every stage because um, there was no incentive. So our piece, you know, again, it comes back to being a lawyer, right? You punish the bad guys on behalf of those who are suffering. And so that would be how we approach it. And as for what can the law school do, I mean, their human rights and the environment is a course. Um, I, I teach that course at Washington College of Law. There's actually a legal textbook called Human Rights and the Environment that, um, that is written. So like, you know, UVA could and probably should um, offer the course, Human Rights and the Environment, and also the Human Rights course, and also the Environment course, but like 
also something that focuses on the intersectionality. Um, so if someone has to do it first, you could do it. <laughs> I'll share my curriculum with you. <laughs> yeah. So, but this law, you know, the, the law school needs to be lobbied by its constituents, which is you guys. Um, well, on the note of Human Rights Fellowship, so we do not have them, but we do have the Kennedy Fellowship, so I hope you are familiar with that, which could be a terrific opportunity to go for, work for a human rights organization for a year, get paid by the law school, and then hopefully transition into a paid position. So there is some. Yep. Yeah, and in fact, the first Kennedy Fellowship was Michelle Harrison, who basically, like, lobbied, 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 lobbied until they finally gave her one, or one of the first to come and work for us. Um, oh, and see, is she still with you? She's still with us, yep, so she's still with us, yeah. supposed to work. Mm-hmm, <laughs> yep, so she charted her own path, and, and yeah, she's doing great work at her grades. Okay, wonderful. Well, yeah. I guess we're pretty much out of time. Thank you so much. That's super yeah. interesting and wonderful. Uh, Thanks for so, having me. Thank you.